In the summer of 1982, John Douglas, one of our country's first FBI profilers, developed a profile for the state of Washington, specifically the Seattle-Kent area of Washington state. The killings are the work of one person who has familiarity with the sites where the bodies were found, drives a lot, either a fan or a four-door car that is at least three years old, not well-maintained, and is conservative in his driving habits. The person you are looking for is of average or slightly higher intelligent, divorced with low self-esteem. He is a large man with good physical condition, white, He has no racial preference and choice of victims or sex workers. He is in his mid-20s to early 30s, comes from a family background with marital discord. He is shy and has strong personal feelings of inadequacy. He is not the type to hustle women in a bar, but is a smooth talker. He may have a prior criminal history of assault and rape. His intentions may not have been to kill someone. At some point, the encounter did turn fatal. He, the killer, has felt that he has been burned or lied to and fooled by a woman one too many times. In his way of thinking, women are no good and cannot be trusted, and he feels women will prostitute themselves for whatever reason. And when he sees a woman openly prostituting themselves, it makes his blood boil. Has had non-violent encounters with sex workers that ended normally. May have a strong interest in police work. The killer may have initiated contact with victims by posing as a police officer or other authority figure. Most likely raised by a single parent. There may be a second person involved in his killings does not plan to put his victims through some sort of ritual sexual act or body positioning. He is an angry individual who demonstrates power over his victims, enjoys the publicity he is receiving from news coverage. He is a beer drinker, probably a smoker, is unemployed or chronically underemployed. When he does work, He has a job that requires more strength than skill. He is an outdoorsman, recreational fisherman, and hunter. Not very neat or meticulous. Had trouble in school, possibly dropping out his junior or senior year. Possible strong religious feelings. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight we dive into the green, murky waters of a now endangered river. The Green River flows from Cascade Mountains just north of Mount Rainier down through Auburn, Kent, and finally it feeds into the heart of the Port of Seattle. It just has one fatal flaw on its history. It became the dumping ground for yet another serial killer to come from Kent County in Washington State. The manhunt for the Green River Killer would span nearly three decades before forensic DNA would help capture one of America's most prolific serial killers, Gary Leon Ridgway. This is the case cleansed by the water, the hunt for the Green River Killer. Warning, 
This episode contains graphic detail of sex, murder, and adult language. Listeners' discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, my true crime nerds. I hope you all have transitioned into the holiday season well, whether you have those trees up or not, enjoying this time where families are brought together. And I promise to bring you relief in the form of a podcast for much of the season. We have made it to the final case for season three, but don't worry, this is far more than a three-part series. We do have a little bit of housekeeping to get to. Remember, you can always support the show by going to thetruecrimelibrarian.com and clicking that donate button. Every little bit helps keep the show like TTCL alive and kicking. You can also show that support by reviewing and recommending the show on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. And if you are on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe to the channel and click that bell to get notified whenever a new episode is available. While you're at it, hit the like button. Every little bit helps grow the show and bring you even more of the materials you like with your librarian hosting. Be on the lookout for Patreon coming soon, I promise. Also, the return of the True Crime Nerd Love will make a comeback next season. Special thank you to those donating and recommending. Your support is what keeps me going. Little disclaimer tonight, I may be a little intense, a little fast-paced. I just got done with the two-hour season premiere of Yellowstone, and let me say, if you've yet to see it, it is amazing. Enough of all of this. Let's get to what you all came here for. The true crime. King County, Washington thought that Ted Bundy would be the worst case to ever come from it. His killing started in February of 1974 and would shake King County up until his departure in September of 1974 when he moved on to attend law school and terrorize Salt Lake City. To this day, there are unfound bodies of Ted Bundy inside of King County's mountainside but investigators and community members would have a short-lived time of peace before bodies began turning up along the Green River that ran parallel to I-5. State Route 99 or Pack Highway to others became a regular roadway for locals. This route was created in 1969 
when portions of I-5 would become decertified. Sex workers and their pimps slowly migrated to Pack Highway or SR-99. Those passing through Seattle most likely stuck to I-5. But on the other side of the Green River was the local roadway that became known as the Strip. If you were looking for a date with a sex worker in the late 70s to early 80s, this would be the place. It was also the place to hide in plain sight. Men with insatiable sex drives, desires to be with Lady of the Night, or fantasies they couldn't possibly tell their wives about flocked to that street. And the women dressed to impress became sitting ducks for the man who haunted King County for nearly three decades. In 2001, forensic DNA was far enough advanced that testing DNA against a tiny sample was now possible. The DNA gave King County's officers the name they had desperately been searching for. Let me introduce you to Gary Leon Ridgway. He was born February 18, 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm going to take a second here and be like, uh, we're realizing that Ridgeway and Bundy had marks in their history that lined up, but at opposite times, like the Lincoln and Kennedy thing where Kennedy had a secretary named Lincoln and Lincoln had a secretary named Kennedy, you know, those kind of historical things that are just coincidental. We have the same going on with the two serial killers to come out of Washington state. Gary was the second-born son to Mary and Thomas Ridgway. Gary had an older brother and a younger brother. He grew up in what would later become known as SeaTac in King County. There was something odd about Gary. He would have episodes of bedwetting. For those who know the McDonald triad, you know this is highly important in the development of a possible serial killer. He had these bedwetting episodes up into his teen years. These would be one thing. Just wetting the bed in itself is one thing psychologically to have to deal with because you're constantly wondering what it is you missed out on that is the like key to unlock staying dry all night. Well, this only intensifies because during these episodes of bedwetting, Mary would take Gary into the tub and she would scrub his genitals. This was either as a form of humiliation in hopes this would help stop the bedwetting, or she may have had an issue with looking at or abusing male genitalia. I, I can't tell you which way or the other. I mean, during that time, some parents probably wouldn't have, you know, thought twice about it. But in today's time where we have child predators are one of the worst things you can become in this day and age. This is questionable activity. So I don't know if, if maybe there was already some instability there with Mary and it just fed into Gary. And since he had these episodes that were humiliating, because if you're a teenager and you're wetting the bed, it's not like you get up and go, mm, had an accident. No, that's humiliating. That's embarrassing. Oh my gosh, you know, how come I keep doing this? What is wrong with me kind of thing? Well, then you have your mother throwing you in the tub and scrubbing your genital area because you can't control your bladder at night. 
So we're having this perfect little psychological storm developing inside of Gary. He would develop a desire to kill his mother, but he would never act upon that desire. This probably continued into his adult years and, and really fed that hatred of women for Gary. So when he did begin killing, there's a likelihood his mother's face or the acts that she put him through were something that would flash back during that time and only drive that desire to, to snuff out that woman um, that was his victim. Around 1965, Gary would do something that he always wondered what it would feel like to do. He stabbed a six-year-old boy who was playing cowboys and Indians near the bushes along a street corner. Gary pulled out his pocket knife and stabbed the first grader in the right side. Blood ran from the wound quickly as he lacerated the child's liver. The boy asked Gary, why did you kill me before taking off and seeking help? Later, the boy had been found in California alive and well. He did need surgical repair from the wound caused by Gary. He said that he, he could remember Gary laughing creepily while using the boy's shirt to clean both sides of the blade before he closed it and returned it to his pocket. Gary walked away satisfied with learning what that feeling was to actually stab someone. This boy was not picked out. He wasn't stalked. He was just an opportunity. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now his family probably didn't see that. No one ever came after Gary for this incident. And no, the boy, he recovered in the hospital for a few weeks following his surgery to repair the laceration to his liver. Then he went home where he resumed school through homeschooling. After a few months, his family decided that it would be best that they move to California and put some distance between the child and the attacker. None of them realized that the stabbing itself was enough to appease Gary's desire at this moment, and further retaliation was not an issue. But when you put your child's safety in a bubble like that, it, you, you, know, you don't know and you don't want to play the stakes. You don't want to burst that little bubble because that's all it would take to let the evil back in and give them another chance to take your child. So they just packed up and left. And when you hear of someone stabbing a first grader just for the fun of it, you can't help but wonder if this would go on to be something more. So that is where I think the parents added in the information they knew and made their decision to keep their son safe by taking him away. And I think it was a great idea as well. I think this boy probably would have had undue PTSD had they stayed in the area and forced him to possibly have an encounter with his attacker again. Gary would need to be held back two separate years when he entered high school before finally graduated in 1969 from Taiyi High School. Now, here's the thing. When Gary stabbed the, the little boy, he was 16, and that was around the year of 1965. 
So it took him six years to graduate from high school and to complete that life event, right? Like most people, they see graduating high school or, or obtaining their GED. There's your first milestone in life. Then you go on and you get your first job and then you get your first paycheck. And then, you know, you hit your first year at the same job. Your milestones quickly add up as an adult. You, you, you don't realize it because time seems to move faster. Uh, and then, but that's kind of where he was. It took him six years to hit that milestone that he's finally really an adult. Even though he was an adult two years by the time he was a junior in high school, he was already an adult as far as his age went. Gary would go to work for Kentworth Motor Trunk Company for a short time following graduation. There was no real direction. College was not for Gary. Unlike the profile written up for him later, he was everything but intelligent. He may have had a set of common sense knowledge that offset his lack of book knowledge, but he was not intelligent. And we kind of saw that with Bundy. He was extremely smart. He, he really knew his way around the, the legal system, around the police. And what they would need to actually prosecute him with as far as his, his crimes went. Bundy really understood that, you know, he could do certain things and the evidence required to prove it and this, that, and the other. He knew it, it made him even more dangerous. In July of 1969, Gary decided to enlist in the U.S. Navy. His girlfriend at the time, Claudia Craig, would follow to California where he performed his basic training and when Gary graduated, the two wed in August of 1970. Soon after the wedding, Gary was deployed to Vietnam and did some time in the Philippines. During his time on the other side of the map, Gary would regularly visit sex workers to fulfill his high-paced sex drive. Claudia was back in the States and she would become romantically involved with another man. Both of them cheated. However, in Gary's eyes, what he did was nothing out of the ordinary. His wife, though, had become a whore in his. In July of 1971, Ridgway was honorably discharged from the U.S. Navy. His time was up and he was done. The marriage to his first wife, Claudia, was all but gone, and the two were separated where Gary moved back to Seattle and went to work for Kentworth Motors, and Claudia went with the man she would later marry. On January 14, 1972, Claudia and Gary finalized their divorce, and both were currently in the process of moving on as Gary would meet his second wife in 1972. In 1973, Gary married his second wife, Marcia Winslow. Marcia would be the only wife to provide him with a child, a son they would name Matthew Ridgway, who was born on September 5th of 1975. We learn quite a bit from Marcia and the extent to what Gary's sex drive was like, and he loved to have sex outdoors. He demanded sex more than once a day, and bondage was something 
he wanted to occur during these intimate moments. Gary's love for the outdoors, and we learn later that he associates that with the stabbing and the feeling he had after that accompanied with sex. This led to one of the biggest attributes of his profile. While Gary and Marsha would take walks, Gary would manage to slip away only to sneak back upon his wife and scare her. In hindsight, this is ominous. The other thing we learned from Marsha is that the places that Gary Ridgeway liked to have sex with her in the outdoors would become dumping grounds for Gary when he started his serial killing. In July of 1980, Marsha had had enough and she and Gary would separate. Once again, Gary was left alone. The two would finalize their divorce on May 27, 1981, just a little over a year from the first murder that we definitively know belonged to him. Gary admits that he was killing prior to the, the very first victim that we know, but to his accounts and the people, he you know, he had a really hard time with names, but he could kind of remember certain things happening. We can't confirm that. When we start our victim list, we're starting with the very first one that we can confirm belonged to Gary Ridgeway. Without location of these bodies prior to that first one, we cannot bring charges against him. If the bodies show up later and there's evidence that points to another killing, we have an issue. Especially with something as high profile as Gary and what this could do for his appeals process later. We'll get into it a little bit more as we get into this case. But for now, we know the finalization of his divorce to a second wife, it occurred a little over a year before the first murder. Gary would have visitation with his son Matthew every other weekend, and Marcia retained full custody of their son. In time, we learned that having Matthew's things in his vehicle and even having him with him would cause the sex workers to let their guards down around him. And this is very important. This is the one of the ways that he was able to hide in plain sight for nearly 30 years. His first victim, Wendy Cofield. She was born April 17, 1966. She was 16 years old and had run away from her foster family in Tacoma. She was a little over 140 pounds soaking wet and stood just 5 foot 4 inches, giving Gary about a half a foot advantage over her. Wendy worked the Strip or Pacific Highway as a way to earn some cash. She was young and those on the prowl for a date enjoyed the girls when they were younger. As the act itself was illegal, it didn't seem to deter them from going after the younger girls because they were already committing one crime. What was it to add another one? And back in that time, we hear of a man of 30, 40, 50 having sex with a 16-year-old, and we cringe because we live in the, the here and now where sexual, where 
predators seek children and 16 is still a child no matter how you look at that we live in a world where kids are kidnapped and sold into um sex slavery that is our here and now but for them that wasn't a thing i mean it was but it wasn't like it is today so to hear that you know oh she's 16 well she's almost there right she's almost legal that's how they were viewing it. It wasn't frowned upon like it was today. There were women out there getting married at 17, 18 years old. So for them, it's almost an adult. So to hire a girl who is willingly selling her body for sex, for cash, and her being 16, you don't think twice. Wendy and her mother never really had any money. Wendy dropped out of school when she was just in junior high. And one night she came home and she was disheveled and she was upset. And she told her mother she was raped by a man that picked her up hitchhiking. Hitchhiking was Wendy's primary way of travel. Sticking her thumb up to the sky and praying for someone with a big heart would stop and pick her up and get her closer to her destination, if not take her there completely. Well, that's the risk she was willing to take. Wendy would later serve a small stint inside of juvenile detention, but her mother said that had they kept her there and given her some direction instead of releasing her, Wendy could have had a different outcome in life. However, she was in trouble for stealing $140 worth of food stamps from a neighbor, and time was served. So she was released and shipped to a foster home, but with her extensive history of running away, she wouldn't be there long. On July 8th of 1982, Wendy went out on a 24-hour pass to go and visit her grandparents. She would never be seen again. On July 15th of 1982, two young boys playing down by the river's edge saw something floating along a concrete pylon for Peck Bridge. It was Wendy Cofield's body. She was naked except for her shoes and socks. Her jeans and underpants and shirt had been tied in a knot tightly around her neck. An autopsy would later confirm that Wendy had been strangled. There was the fracture to the hyoid bone and significant hemorrhaging in her neck muscles. If you'll go back to the Amanda Winkowski case, we talked about this when it came to really nitpicking the autopsy reports between the two medical examiners and we see one medical examiner talk about the extensive hemorrhaging inside of those neck muscles however the hyoid bone was not sent to that second medical examiner and so we never really definitively learn whether or not it was fractured this bone is not connected to any other bone in your body it sets far enough in your neck that the only way that it would obtain a fracture is through significant strangulation of that area, whether it's compressed of hands, rope, ligatures, whatever. Squeezing down tightly is the only way you can fracture this bone. I, I assume you could probably fall and catch it if you caught your, but 99.9% .9 of the time when you see this fracture, you, you can say there was manual strangulation that occurred.
In addition, her humerus bone was broken. This is the upper bone to your arm, which next to your femur, it's the second strongest bone in your body and can be quite difficult to break. And when it does, it's quite painful. The autopsy revealed that Wendy did indeed die around the July 8th date, shortly after she was reported missing. Wendy was identified when the police released the designs of her five tattoos. A vine with around a heart was on her left arm. She had two tiny butterflies just above her breast. She had a cross with a vine around it on her shoulder. She had a Harley Davidson motorcycle insignia on her back. And there was an unfinished tattoo, an outline of a unicorn on her lower abdomen. It would be a tattoo artist that would come forward recognizing the work and being able to identify Wendy's body. <clears throat> Giselle Lavorne. She was born February 26, 1965, and she was a very young 19 years old. She made her way in life as a sex worker working the Strip or Pack Highway. Giselle was from California, and she had promise in way of her schoolwork. She was highly intelligent. She had been tested several times along the IQ testing and steadily would score above genius levels. However, when her family moved from New Orleans to California, it left her feeling like an outsider. She didn't belong, and not to mention where she was living, she had to be bused to the inner city, and those kids didn't match the peers that she'd had back home. And they often would beat her up and take her lunch money. She hated school in California and she was constantly looking for a way out. Well, she met her on again, off again boyfriend. She was looking for a way out and he being several years older than she offered what she wanted. She ran away and dropped out of school in the 10th grade. Paired with her newest friends, she traveled the country. Sometimes this was on her own because she was following the Grateful Dead tour of that year. She prided herself in being what is called a genuine deadhead. She followed the bands and it was something she was loving and something that became her escape from everything else in her life. She did finally make her way back to where her ex-boyfriend, current boyfriend, roommate, whatever the hell they were at the time, had settled in Seattle, and for now, she had found her stop. According to her family, she had phoned regularly and had planned to go back to California to finish out school. She was done following the band, and it was time to make plans to head in a different direction. She would never have an opportunity to take action to complete this, though. Around 11 a.m. Saturday, July 17, 1982, just nine days after Wendy Cofield went missing, Giselle left her apartment telling her on-again, off-again boyfriend she planned to turn three or four tricks and would return later in the day. Her long, thick blonde hair and freckles gave her a very youthful appearance, very schoolgirl look. And this helped her as, like I said, Johns like to have that fantasy. When afternoon came and Giselle didn't, there was worry. 
when supper came and Giselle wasn't there, there was time to call the police. Her boyfriend called and reported her missing on the evening of July 17th. But to reporters, when he spoke and gave interview, he says the police never took him seriously. However, their records show Giselle Laverne was placed on their missing person list the very evening he called and reported her missing. Deborah Bonner was born October 31st, 1958. Another girl who walked the strip, a lady of the night. She told some friends that she was going to turn a few tricks on the evening of July 25th, 1982. Deborah was slender and exotic looking, but much like the other two victims, she dropped out of high school just two years shy of graduation. With the lack of education, Deborah really had a hard time finding jobs and her way in life. Initially, she had planned to join the U.S. Navy, but when she failed the entrance exam, she was left to try and find something else to replace it. Deborah planned to go and take the exam to get her GED and start a new life, but, la but life was happening now and love had found her. Her new lover was all the happy to let her turn the tricks so that she could support him. Real winner there, right girls? At first, she was treated like a queen, but then he introduced her to heroin. Once she had a taste of it, it was hard to walk away from the drug. Soon, turning tricks was happening so she would just have enough to feed the addiction she and the once good-to-her man needed to get through the day or night. Soon, her boyfriend turned pimp was telling her she owed him several thousand dollars and the dream of her having a better life was fading fast. If she owed him that much money, one thing she knew. Thanks to his past charges of assault and manslaughter, he was going to collect one way or another. What she never guessed was that he wasn't the worst that could happen to her. Marcia Chapman, born July 9, 1951. She left her apartment that she shared with her three children, 11, 9, and 3, on August 1, 1982 and was never seen again. Marcia was a 31-year-old attractive petite woman known as Tiny by many of her friends. She worked the strip like the women who had gone missing before her. However, unlike the women before her, she had children waiting for her back home. Here's the thing, when I dig into these backgrounds of the women, it's really hard for some of them because they are sex workers. There's no payroll for them. There's no talking about your life outside of working the strip. And if you did, others don't repeat what they heard. And it makes it quite difficult when you're researching this case because when I sat down and I was planning this case, I'm, I'm not going to lie to y'all. We're looking at about seven weeks of talking about the same case. We have an ex extensive victim list to cover and so I want to provide you with as much detail to actually humanize these women because a lot of people are like oh my god they were sex workers who's gonna miss them you know what 
how they chose to pay their bills is none of my business. They're not paying my bills. And I think I've said this before. It, I'm not here to judge you. If that's what you want to do, if life has led you to that point, you have to do what you have to do in order to make it till tomorrow and then to make it to the day after that and maybe next week and maybe next month. You do what you have to do to survive. But because of their profession, you're left with a very small amounts of details, especially when there was not a family actively looking for them. And it's not that Marsha Chapman didn't have a family. She had three children who wanted to know what happened to mom. But there wasn't anybody outside of her own mother looking for her. And honestly, her own mother didn't really look for her either. She was identified through composite sketch. Her mother was like, oh, yeah, that's my kid. There wasn't some you know, huge backstory to her upbringing. Some of these women, they come from a dark past. Some of these women hit a rough patch in life and the only way they see out is by becoming a sex worker. There are women who go on to be more. They go on to be, you know, the teller at the bank. They go on to be <laughs> your mortgage provider. They go on to be the lawyer. You know, this is not the end of the road for everybody. And that that's okay. There are some women, though, that are like Marsha. I would venture to guess that all three of her children were product of her profession. Uh, that didn't make her love them any less. But when you don't know who the father is, there's very little support to come your way. You're doing it on your own. You're doing it what you know how, the only way you know how. And you, you got up and you were mom and then you went and you did your work so you could go home and be mom again. And I commend you for that. But it does make very difficult work for somebody trying to piece together this case. This case is huge. I knew when I took it on what I was diving into. Well, I say I knew. I didn't. When I covered the BTK case, that was one of the serial killers to emerge from American history that I knew least about. Next up is Gary Ridgway. I don't know a lot about this case, but what I do know was enough to draw me in and start asking the questions, okay? So that's why we're here tonight talking about it. It's something I can't not think of because now I've got that ball rolling and I need answers, but then I run into victims like Marsha Chapman and I hit a brick wall within sentences of their back history. There's nothing to tell because there was nothing they wanted others to know. So in light of that, it makes it very difficult for me to really deduce down how many weeks this is actually going to turn out to be. I fully expected tonight's episode to be much longer, but here I am explaining my method to madness, and really, honestly, I'm probably just trying to buy time because there's so much more about this case than these few details. However, these few details are what we need to know. These women went missing. And they went missing rapidly. 
we're on victim four. We're not two weeks out from the first victim being taken. So as this has happened, Gary is becoming quite comfortable in his manner of hunting and killing. He's perfecting it. His dumping ground is water. And so far, it's proved to pay off. Next up, I have Cynthia Hines. She was born February 23rd, 1965. She was last seen by her pimp on August 11th of 1982, just 10 days following Marsha Chapman going missing. A man driving a black Jeep had picked her up and she was never seen from seen or heard from again. Her pimp said that he saw the Jeep and he saw that a man was picking her up, but it never occurred to him that he needed to write down the license plate number. And at this point, we have a couple sex workers that have gone missing. It's making news, but it's not making the splash that it did when Ted Bundy was kidnapping university girls and, you know, women just... It's two different class of women. So it wasn't making that splash just yet. And Cynthia didn't know what to be looking for. And honestly... As the media coverage grew, you never really learned what to look for. Why? Because the person out there committing these crimes was average looking. He had children's stuff in his truck, so therefore he's a family man. Family men couldn't possibly be the one to want to kill you. He didn't look deranged. He didn't look like a, you know, a drugged out person. He looked like your typical married man that had desires he was afraid to go to his spouse about to have them fulfilled and these women if you paid them enough they were willing to fulfill them for you so what do you look for when the person kidnapping and killing you is the same person you've grown to trust opal mills she was born April 12th, 1966, and she was barely 16 years old when she went missing just one day after her friend Cookie, who was Cynthia. Cynthia was known on the streets as Cookie, and Opal Mills was very close to her. She told her, her parents that that day she was going to go hang out with her friend Cookie, and they were going to be painting. They were completely unaware of the things that Opal had been doing in order to have money. Friends would later confirm to investigators that Opal was turning tricks as a sex worker. Unlike the other victims, Opal didn't have a history of running away. She didn't have a, a, a horrible home life. She had a mother and a father who were married. She had a brother who had survived a childhood heart condition. Life at home for Opal was what you expected to see when you opened any front door of a family home in 1982. So what led her to turning tricks? You can't put your finger on it and say this is definitively how every woman ends up here. You don't because then you have somebody like Opal. Opal.
her issues was some point in her early teen years, she began to put some weight on. Not only that, but Opal came from a mixed race background. Her mother was fully white. Her father was fully African-American. This gave her exotic features that you didn't see on a bunch of people. As a matter of fact, at the time that her mother and father got married, had it been found out that they were married, both of them faced jail time and fines to pay. So we still were not seeing that race line being crossed very often. But then you have Opal, so you don't see that outcome and you have this beautiful complexion. She looked tan year round. She wasn't dark. She wasn't light. She was a little heavier set. She wasn't, you know, she was shorter and it just really rounded her out. She was a happy, bubbly teenager. And due to the weight she put on, she developed a love for attention. And if it came from men and boys, even better. And if it offered a little bit of mischief, well, that's the perfect thing. On August 12th, 1982, Deborah Bonner's remains were found. As Gary worked on hunting for a new victim, when Deborah's body floated down the Green River about a quarter mile from where Ridgeway dumped her into the water, she had got caught in a log jam. Detective David Reichter said that it was as if Deborah's hand reached from the water asking to be helped. And all he can remember thinking was he was there too late, but he could help her in the afterlife. He could find the bastard who put her in the water and bring him to justice. Kent County Sheriff's officers were seemingly working around the clock as bodies from the Green River Killer were starting to be found at a rapid pace. Deborah would later be identified from her fingerprints due to being picked up prior in the last 30 days of her life on two separate occasions for prostitution charges. Detectives learned that Deborah had last been seen just 18 days before when she left Three Bears Motel to go and turn a few tricks. When she never returned, her room was cleaned and re-rented to another guest. The chances of finding evidence there might tell them what happened to her they were lost when the room was cleaned. Deborah was found naked in the waters, and any evidence on her body was possibly washed away by the water. Deborah's boyfriend became a person of interest in not only the murder of Deborah, but also of Wendy Caulfield due to his criminal past, manslaughter, and assault. However, as quickly as he came to the list, he went away. On August 15, 1982, a man rafting down the Green River spotted two bodies in the water, roughly 600 yards from where Deborah Bonner's body had been discovered. Their faces were barely seen below the surface of the water. Marsha Chapman and Cynthia Hines were found partially floating in the water. It was as if their bodies had snagged in the underbrush of the riverbed. However, once removed from the water, the medical examiner would find why their bodies never really fully floated to break the surface 
of the water. Both women had triangular shaped stones shoved into their vaginal openings. These were so tightly fit that the rocks had to be surgically removed from both of their bodies. We can argue that these stones show something deeper going on with the killer at this time. Was he having moments of inadequacy with the women during their dates? That's a possibility. Was this a way to show how much he hated and his distaste of how well they performed? Possibly. Had he felt felt rushed and made him feel like his time was not worth their time. That's also a possibility. Some of these women turn four or five, maybe 10 tricks a night. After a while, I can see going, are you, are you done? <laughs> you know, and it's not, when it's your job, it's not, you're not doing it for the fun of it or for the pleasure of it. And for these women, honestly, I have a lot of questions because I kind of don't know how it would work per se. But if they made him feel at any point like he wasn't doing a good enough job, if he felt like that he was unable to bring them to orgasm as well, you know, did they rush him? Did they just go you know, the motions of it all. There's a lot of questions that could be raised. And unfortunately, only Gary could actually answer that. And he is pretty tight-lipped on this kind of information. And yeah, they got to hold on to something, right? So can we read into how these bodies were found? Yes, we can. But what I think it really comes down to is he decided he needed there to be a lot more time between the time they disappeared and the time they were found. And this is either so he can go back and revisit the site and take matters into his own hand, have his own kind of satisfaction. It was because as long as they were missing and not found, he held some sort of control over them. And that in itself was something that kind of gave him intense satisfaction and then once the bodies were found it was like they took that away from him and he needed to go find somebody else all of these in a roundabout way lead back to one thing and that's what was gary thinking what what was going through his mind and that's why a lot of us are nerds in the true crime world because we we want to understand what led you there. What made you decide that debasing them as a human being and living out your dirtiest fantasy with them, all for exchange uh, for some money, you know, what led through each stage of that? And, and I think that's our big question that we look for and, I, and I, that's why I dive as deep as I do because things like this things like finding these stones inside of these women it immediately start bringing forth some of these questions uh, you know how where were these encounters different obviously they were what happened during them that made him decide to change the way he did things 
in reality, I think it came down to as long as they were missing and as long as the police didn't find their body, he owned them. He owned that situation and it was his alone to relive over and over again. That's just where I'm kind of thinking he is. The girls were found with stones on top of their breast and stomach, and this helped alleviate some of that rising that would occur with the gas buildup from decomposition in the bodies. So this also further just leads me to say that I think that as long as they were missing, they only belonged to him. Now, Detective Rector was on scene, and he was trying to get a better, I guess, angle to kind of take in the crime scene. And he went down this really steep slope on one of the embankments of the river, and he slipped. And when he did, he almost stepped on top of another woman that was laying on the bank. Opal Mills was laying on the bank of the river. She was only 16 years old. More questions are coming up. You know, we've got Cynthia and we've got Marsha in the water. Both of them had been anchored so that they went, It, you know, it took longer to find them. But Opal Mills was on the embankment. Did, did he get tired? Did he run out of energy and decide, screw it, this works? Or was there something that occurred that spooked him and he thought, dump it and go? And we got to stay off of the police's radar. There's questions that arise with this crime scene. It's so unique. We have three women who've gone missing within weeks of each other, within days of each other. And now we find them in a cluster dump. This is not a normal technique amongst serial killers. They don't typically dump in the same site over and over and over. I say typically. It depends. Well, now that you're looking at it, I mean, John Wayne Gacy, all of them are under his house. Dahmer, all of them were in his apartment. When you're in comparison to Ted Bundy, he'd have a couple of sites where two or three bodies would show up at the same place. So I say it's not typical, but it is. They like to revisit that place. However, because these women went missing at such a close interval as one of another, you can't help but think that he was losing the battle with the control of that desire to go out and kill. Here's something a little different about Opal's body. She had been severely sunburned and many believe, including the medical examiner, that this all occurred post-mortem as she laid out in that area for God only knows how long. She had on either blue shorts or slacks, but they had been taken off and tied off around her neck. And unfortunately, the expression she wore in postmortem showed detectives what her last moments were like. And it showed her brother, too, when he went down to identify the body. The death of Opal would send her father into a tailspin and alcoholism became a daily battle until he lost his life just a few years later. 
Cynthia Hines was identified by her father after another sketch composite came out to identify her. Like I said, Marsha Chapman's identity, the only thing I can really think of is she was identified by her mother through composite, but there is no definitive answer. On August 16th of 1982, King County Sheriff's Office saw a need. They needed to form a task force to find whoever was out there killing the city's sex workers. And soon this task force would grow exponentially. Their killer was killing fast and his bodies are turning up even faster. At this point, we've got people working around the clock. The list grows to 74 investigators over its time with eight commanders leading the way. The budget was growing so large. They had undercover agents walking the streets on the strip mixed in with sex workers. Investigators were exhausting resources to find out who had quickly become King County's next nightmare. We had commanders barking orders and there were leads to be chased, but 99.9% turned out to be nothing. I think with this, this case, I think that you have this huge folklore, I would say. Not really. You have this huge thing coming out with Gary. He's seemingly hiding, but really he's not. He's, he's hiding in plain sight. So you're on the lookout for this man. And in your mind, you're thinking some deranged freak is out there picking off the city's sex workers. In reality, he's, you know, your neighbor who you wave to every day. He's, you know, the father of your son. He's the man you're going to marry. He's the guy you stand next to eight hours a day and tape off vehicles to be painted. He's your everyday Joe. But with such a huge reputation building on top of him in that moment and in this time frame then you have the task force and this task force was something we really didn't ever see come with Bundy or BTK or um, Dahmer or Gacy we didn't have a large task force put together and be on the hunt for somebody actively for decades we didn't have that so when you hear about this case, the first thing you hear about is how Gary just kind of hid in plain sight. But the next thing you hear about is the level that the task force grew to in its time searching for the man who lived within miles of the strip. And I think that's the other thing that keeps this case pretty interesting. You're wondering how 74, well, technically 82 people were looking for a man in a specific target area and overlooked him repeatedly for a few years. Now, if you do know the story well, you know that Gary comes up on radar eventually, but sticking it to him, a little bit more difficult. I'm going to introduce you to our seventh and final confirmed victim for tonight's episode. Her name was Terry... Milligan. 
She was born January 26, 1966. She stood just five foot seven inches, weighed 125 pounds. She was only 16 years old and she was living in the Moonrise Motel. She worked the strip as a sex worker and she was last seen around 6 p.m. on August 19, 1982. The task force was learning more and more about this dubbed Green River Killer with each victim. Like I said, some of these women were so enthralled in their career that there was very little back history to who they are. They have the family and the family remembers who they are. But as far as the public knowing them very well, there's nothing to know. There's nothing to dig up. Most of the women had at least one prior in prostitution. Um, Opal Mills completely blindsided her family that she had been selling herself. Then you have women who managed to stay off the radar, managed to stay out of trouble, and who were out there just doing it to make ends meet. With each of these victims... Even though we don't have the significant back history, we do have certain criteria that helps us kind of see how he evolves over the years. Typically with serial killers, you see them murder within their own race, i.e. whites kill whites, African-Americans kill African-Americans. If you know of an Indian serial killer, well, they probably killed within the Native Americans. We see this as being the pattern, right? But then you have these anomalies, which Gary is. He, he didn't see skin color. He saw vulnerability. He saw opportunity with these women. And so picking them out and trying to put a demographic on them was impossible. You couldn't. He killed women of, he killed African-American women. He killed women who were white. He killed women who were mixed. He just needed them to be vulnerable and young. It was like, because Gary wasn't this big physical man like John Douglas first profiled him to be he he profiled him to be somebody with strength and he did have strength when you look at him he looks like your typical american man really he had a bad haircut it was the 80s all men had bad haircuts he had a poorly chosen mustache but had you passed him in the supermarket you wouldn't have thought twice about him he was able to morph into whatever he needed to be in order to do this. So, because of that stature, because of his physique, he needed his girls to be of a certain physique themselves. He needed to be able to overpower them and not be concerned with how much exertion would come. Especially if he's taking them back and having sex with them. That is physical exertion in itself. Then to overpower them and take away their life, well, that's like three times the exertion. So he needed to know that he had the stamina versus she did. And that's how he chose his victims. 
He wasn't running around town like the Night Stalker and breaking into homes and raping the women. He was going out like every other man that you saw in this decade. He had an intense sexual desire and he was browsing willing participants who would be compensated for their time that they spent with him. Their need to do their work under the cover of night and in secluded areas that only added to them becoming the perfect target for Gary. He could have sex with them. He could debase them. And when he was ready, he could kill them. He would have satisfaction in his moment on every level. Gary is working at this point of growing his body count all while he has victims that went missing and their names may be somewhere on King County Sheriff's Office list of missing people, but there's not a body to know for sure that they had been murdered. Following his divorce from Marsha, Gary purchased a home at, at 21859 32nd Place South. He would not live in this home for approximately six months as he had renters in 1982. However, when he did move into the home, he would bring dozens of dates back to his house instead of somewhere close to where they were working. And once they were inside his home, their fate was sealed. He had complete and total control. He would live out his sexual fantasies and then he would kill them to get that trifecta of satisfaction. This, his home was in a, a very median place within his hunting ground and dumping ground. He was able to get to the Green River when less than 15 minutes. He could be on the strip in less than 10. So when having sex outdoors didn't work, when that wasn't part of the plan, well, if I take them back to my house, they don't know the layout. They're going to be walked through to the bedroom, but they're not going to pick up on it. They're there to do a job. So everything that he did, even up to the purchase of this home, all were decided around his desire to keep killing. And as long as he stayed off the police radar, he had an infinite amount of time to continue to kill. Now I want to get into one more thing. We have another possible victim. She has yet to be confirmed as a Green River Killer victim. Her name is Casey Ann Woods Lee. She was a woman who had gone missing just the day before Terry Milligan. She was born February 26, 1966, and she was just a 16-year-old girl when she had gone missing. However, the photograph that we have of her, she looks quite a bit older than 16. If I had to guess her age, just based off that photograph, I probably would have pegged her for 24, 26. She has a very... I don't want to say old, because that's not what it is. She's beautiful, but she did look far more mature than she actually was. Now, here's the interesting thing. Both Casey and Terry, they lived within hunting grounds of Gary Widgeway. Their apartments were within that bullseye of an area. She kind of fit his build. She was petite. She had blonde hair. I don't think he ever really had like a natural hair 
preferred hair color or anything like that. I, I really want to say that most of his preference relied on their physical build. And she matched it for him. Now, those close to her, especially some of the girls who were willing to talk, who worked the strip, they said they often had seen her with cuts and bruises to her face, like she had been beaten badly. She was just 105 pounds, so smacking her around like a rag doll wouldn't take much. She did have a boyfriend, and him and Terry's husband, Terry was only 16, she had a husband, told you, some of these girls married young in the 80s, just saying. They were suspects, but they were quickly eliminated. And I can see where Casey's boyfriend became a suspect, especially if she looked like she'd been beaten. But that's also part of the possibility of her profession. I mean, that's a risk. Sometimes you take it. Sometimes the Johns get a little handy. Sometimes they get a little rough. And those are the consequences, right? But everything I'm looking at in, in the very brief history that I know about her, I would probably venture to say that if she's not a Gary Ridgway victim, then her boyfriend got away with murder. I think it was spousal abuse, especially with her parents coming out frequently with cuts and bruises to her face. I would say it's most likely she died from domestic assault rather than being a victim of the Green River Killer. However, later, after Gary is arrested and charged with murders, he slowly is interviewed and he speaks openly about his time being the Green River Killer. And it's all part of his plea, which we will get into. But Gary does admit guilt to killing Casey. However, he does not remember where she disposed of her body, and to this day, her body has not been found. She was not officially labeled a Green River Killer victim. Because if we charge him with this murder, and it didn't occur, and he, didn't, he wasn't the one to kill her, we have a problem. Especially when it comes to his appeal process. And if we can prove he didn't kill Casey... There's always that doubt in the back of your mind that he killed other women he confessed to killing. So prosecution was extremely smart when it came to dealing with Gary. You had to have physical proof, especially a body. So she is considered an unofficial member of the Green River Killers victim list.
Seattle thought they had lived through one of the worst nightmares possible when Ted Bundy began killing in the 70s in Kent County, Washington. He was able to go undetected using a ruse to get close to his victims before killing them and dumping their bodies. Sometimes these victims were raped both before death and post-mortem. Bundy's drive to kill would eerily match that of the Green River Killer, with a few exceptions. Bundy loved the thrill of being sly and being a smooth talker with his victims, trying to get them into his car before he would pounce and unleash the monster that would only be satisfied once their last breath occurred. Gary was different. He didn't want to test out his social skills. He knew that he would be deemed awkward and unable to convince them of a story. No, he wanted women who would be willing to get in his vehicle with the promise of cold, hard cash. Something he saw as the best ruse ever. He didn't have to make some long, elaborated story and pray that they would do what he wanted to. No. He would work like everyone else in the community. He would do his task, earn his money, and then he would go out and use the promise of said money to get his next victim. The more money he had or played like he had, the more victims he could get. Sex workers were his ultimate victim. He could live out the fantasies that a married man should never have. With these girls, he felt they were young, they were vulnerable, And then he could kill them. His effort would be minimal, but the reward would be grand. The women who chose to go out night after night to earn their money so they could live another day, another week, were on high alert. With the media coverage growing with each new victim, they were working in pairs or in groups. They were paying attention to who was picking up what girl. They were doing what they needed to be done to not only make the money they needed, but to keep their life. The only problem was the man that was killing their friends was the type of men they were trusting. The monster was hiding in plain sight. The woman couldn't see him, and the police weren't looking in his direction. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we dig into one of the biggest cases to come out of this country. Serial killers were growing in commonality and figuring out their next move was becoming difficult. The FBI was in the process of developing a system to help catch these killers faster. But for Kent County and the Green River Task Force, the system wasn't being developed fast enough. I want you to join me next week as we take a look at even more victims making the list of the Green River Killer and an investigation eating through taxpayers' money with no suspect in sight yet. As always, I leave you with one last line. Offering sex for money is not a profession that glorifies women. It is a profession born of desperation, poverty, alienation, and loneliness. And roll. Much love, the true crime librarian.